Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Life Mastery. And I'm excited to have Chad Fox, who's a managing partner at Fox Ventures, which is an early stage fintech focused rolling fund. Uh, Fox Ventures invests in early stage fintech companies around the world alongside Taiwan VCs. Uh, sovereign wealth funds and other notable fintech-focused investors. Uh, Fox also sits on uh, uh, on the advisory board of several venture-backed, high-growth startup investment funds, private investment groups, and family offices. He's a lawyer profession and holds a practicing certificate from the High Court of New Zealand. Welcome to the show, Jan. Thank you for having me. Awesome. You know, um, you, you have a very interesting journey because you you uh, you know before. Uh, before the, uh, we were chatting that, you know, you, you're Canadian, but you moved to to New Zealand uh, and uh, you did your law there, but you also worked in Middle East and you invest into uh, into US startups as well. Now, how did that move uh, happen when you, you know, got your law degree from New Zealand and you got into, uh, into the crazy world of venture capital? So I um first took a business kind of degree in canada and after that i didn't know what i really wanted to do but i knew that i had to take uh you know kind of a further further studies and the decision was always between an mba or um go and do a law degree and um my friends at the time that had mbas didn't have jobs that i was jealous about and so i said i might as well you know go get a uh, a law degree and see where that takes me. And I wanted to get it done as quickly as possible. And so I looked around the world and figured out that moving to New Zealand for a couple of years and getting it done was the best way um, to do that. And so I went uh, to New Zealand, got my law degree. And while I was there, I took a, quite a few classes in, um, you know, cyber law, law of the internet, um, you know, corporate law around kind of financings and M&A and those types of transactions. And that kind of pushed me into um, the, the VC space directly out of law school. And so what drove me to the Middle East is what, when I was sitting in New Zealand, I basically decided that it was, you know, not a place that I wanted to stay long-term. And I looked around the world again and said, okay, where's the place where I can go be on the ground floor be in an emerging market, but not give up, you know, kind of the, um, the lifestyle that I wanted to have. So that meant, you know, not going, you know, hardcore into Asia or Africa or Latin and had a few friends in the Middle East and kind of went to Dubai and um, got set up and was one of the few lawyers there that understood early stage companies and ended up in a few law firms that, um, you know, where I was the guy that when any new business came in, I was the one handling it. And so I got to see a lot, got to learn a lot and eventually figured out that I didn't love the, the business of law, but what I loved, you know, so I didn't love charging companies for my six minute time intervals. And I ended up figuring out that I was spending a lot of my time fighting between the law firms and the company about fees and so what I decided was, okay, what do I love? I love advising and helping early stage founders get from, you know, zero to one. And I looked at how is the best way for me to do that. And, you know, I figured out that's actually what a VC does if they're good at their job is that they're helping, you know, their company go from the stage that they invest in 
you know, to the next and so on and so forth. And so um, I made, you know, I started angel investing, eventually left um, being a lawyer. And then I had to make the decision, do I want to go and join a bigger fund or go and um, do my own thing? And because I kind of had the deal flow and some, you know, LP base, I decided to not join a bigger firm and started doing syndicate deals. And that basically leads me to where I am today, where we've invested in about 20 early stage um, fintech companies around the world, focused mostly on uh, Middle East, North Africa, Pakistan, um, doing a lot in Egypt, Pakistan, a bit in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, obviously, where I spent a lot of time and the rest in the US. And so that kind of splits out for my investor base, half of which is Middle East focused, half of which is US focused. And so I kind of get the best of um, those worlds for for the companies and for the investors that I get to work with. Okay. No, <clears throat> this is super interesting. And you know, you talked about uh, Middle East uh, ecosystem. I, I've been part of the Indian startup ecosystem, which is uh, which has really grown uh, leaps and bounds in the last couple of years. But now, what what is uh, you know what is uh, uh, what is the differentiation for for Middle East uh, ecosystem? And uh, you know, have there been really big exits in the last couple of years for uh, for that ecosystem? Yeah, so I think it's 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 moving quickly. There's you know obviously a big shift over in that part of the world. Um, we've seen Sequoia make its first investment in Egypt this year into a, uh, a neobank called uh, Telda. Um, Kleiner Perkins went into Pakistan um, this year for the first time as well. So we're starting to see the bigger U.S. funds um, take an interest in the region. I think we've also seen, obviously, there was a massive exit from Kareem that sold to Uber for $3 billion and um, another really good one, InstaShop, um, sold for about three or $400 million. And so the ecosystem is growing. It's still really new. The thing that people don't understand is that it's, you know, very dislocated, um, but there's a lot of opportunity. Egypt has 100 million people. Pakistan is 225 million people. Um, Saudi and the G and UAE and the kind of entire region accounts for about $4 trillion of investable wealth. And so pro fintech products at the higher end, you know, such as I've invested in a company called Baraka, which is effectively a, you know, a, a commission-free trading platform that allows for access to U.S. stocks. I mean, that side of the market is really good. I've invested in a um, crypto exchange and custody platform that's backed by two sovereign wealth funds um, called Midchains. And so these things at the higher end of the market are also doing extremely well. Um, but it's a, it's a very fragmented market. Um, the regulations aren't great and they don't work together um, as between the entire region. And so it's, you have to kind of understand the region as a whole and know how to operate there. And I think that, you know, for me, it's been, I spent seven years there kind of on the ground. And so I have a, a good understanding of what works there. And I also have uh, one foot in the U.S. as well. So I see all of the things that, you know, are going on there, how they can be implemented in this, you know, other market and what doesn't work. And, you know, I think that gives me a good understanding of how to make those cross-border investments. 
you know when when you look at investing into into, into middle east uh, countries how do you do the due diligence uh, you know considering that you know those those part of the countries uh, there's not been uh, you know big exits as of now uh, how how do you how do you assess uh, you know uh, either uh, the the team or the market uh, in in those countries so i mean i look i've been there for 7 years and i was advising a lot of early stage companies and investors and there are obvious gaps in the market um so one of the theses i always had was go in as early as possible and look for secondary share sales you know at that series b level so go in at the pre seed round and exit at series b and you know that was for a while a pretty good business model because i knew that on a deal by deal basis i'd be able to you know easily make 10 20x um i think if you look at recently there's been um a couple of companies that are going public via spac and so that's a new phenomenon for the region you know angami swivel of both you know sign their stack deals and i think that's super interesting for that um region as well i think too if you look at how some of those company some of those founders are building from there but can execute in the us that's something that i'm really working quite hard on is where you know you're built from the middle east but can execute in any other market around the world i think that's something you know extremely interesting but I have because I've spent time there I've probably a much you know a higher threshold for a company that I'll invest in right it's not whereas you know in plenty of markets you can pick the you can invest in the third or fourth best company and it may still end up as a unicorn um right now in that emerging market it's kind of a winner take all um uh, yeah. model and so I only I only back the companies there that i think are going to be winner or nothing if i don't get in the winner i don't i don't back anybody else in the in the marketplace current interesting and uh, you know when, when you look at the current uh, financial ecosystem uh, uh, do you do you believe we are in the phase of bundling or unbundling uh, for uh, you know financial well i think we're still in the unbundling phase but it's all fintech and all financial services is you know unbundling and rebundling and so i think we're still in the unbundling phase but i think what you're seeing a lot more is rebundling is starting especially with embedded services right so anybody who has a strong network effect or has a strong customer base or has a strong voice can now rebundle all those products together and take the customer through their entire journey and so they they may not be building the entire product they may be embedding another service but i think um they're still taking you know the unbundled pieces and putting them back into place so i still think we're um you know extremely extremely early in in financial in fintech and financial services when it comes to a technology perspective um i think it's you know even though it's kind of the flavor of the week right now i think if you ask anybody that's investing in the space it's still literally you know the first 15 minutes of uh, of day one and if you look at it on a, a longer term scope 
And uh, you know, I I had Jake uh, Gibson, who's the founder of uh, Nerd Wallet, and and uh, a partner at Berkmore Ventures, who said that you know every company could become a fintech company, but 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 because of you know COVID uh, and because of uh, you know it had been inflection point for payments company. Do you think a lot of companies can become a, a payments company or they're becoming a fintech uh, company uh, going forward? So my view is that. Every, um, you want to own the entire customer journey, right? The second that you lose your customer to another product, you're losing an opportunity within that space. So I do believe that, you know, every company can offer different services. And that's what we've seen with Uber or in the, you know, Middle East with Kareem, where they have Kareem Pay, where it's, you know, very similar to they're operating, you know, a Venmo type wallet where you can do peer-to-peer transfers and, and things like that. So I do think it's there. I think the biggest thing that I see is customers, users hate onboarding at new places, especially in financial services, right? They hate doing, you know, KYC, they hate doing, you know, the onboarding is much more onerous when you are in financial services. And so I think if you can own the journey from, you know, an early point and be able to offer different services, you're going to do well. And I think also a second piece that's probably the most important in this is certain um platforms know their customer better than anybody in the world, right? So, you know, Walmart is a good example of someone who's getting into the fintech space that knows their customer better than anybody else around the world. And so they are in a good position to offer financial services um, to that customer. And so, yes, I think any company that has a strong customer base can be a fintech, they can be an insure tech, they can be, you know, a med tech, right? They can offer these services and you know, open banking, APIs, you know, the connectivity is is there. So, you know, they should, um, you know, own that journey as much as possible. And that's also why we see, you know, consumer fintech is probably the hardest place to be successful. But when you are successful, you, you know, it's either all or nothing, right? And so, um, but if you already have that customer base, it's pretty easy to, you know, set, to start, a card service or to start a, um, to offer your customers buy now, pay later, or to offer them some other credit product or offer them insurance on whatever they just bought from you. I think it's whoever owns that customer relationship can um, offer them, you know, additional services outside their core business. And, 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 and you know, why do you think this, uh, there's such a, uh, uh, you know, shift when it comes to, you know, companies uh, becoming uh, more of a fintech uh, space. And, you know, do you, do you think there's going to be a consolidation in this space going forward? Um, I think, I think the tool, I think for the last five or six years, there's been a lot of companies building the tools that make this possible, right? So your B2B enterprise fintech players that, you know, make embedded finance or, you know, all these alternative products available for anybody is who's, is what we're seeing today, right? So, you know, for a Facebook to be able to go in and embed a wallet into their service, someone else had to build that first to make even the thought process, you know, available. 
Um, you can see anybody can launch a card now through, you know, the, the numerous providers that are out there. And so that I find super interesting. Um, I think when you look at consolidation, yes, I think it's, you know, it's inevitable that there's going to be consolidation um, across the entire spectrum. You know, Australia has 26 buy now, pay later companies in a really small market. Is that necessary? No, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and so I think you're definitely going to see consolidation, you know, whether it's at the, the lower mid market or, you know, as big players come together, um, I think it's, it's bound to happen in the next few years. And I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, if you remove the barriers to entry for more, more products, uh, will, will it change uh, the product quality and cost? Uh, you know, companies could uh, combine a lot of different products, but if you reduce the, the entry uh, for more products, do you think it will impact the quality? So I think quality, for me at least, quality is still the, the most important thing. And I also think for bigger brands, it's kind of the best and it's the fastest way to erode your brand value is by offering a inferior product out into the market, right? And so my view is that the companies that have a really strong brand are not going to risk that brand value to offer an inferior product. Um, but because so many of those, you know, let's just say lending products or whatever are becoming a commodity that they're going to be able to go into the market, find the best one and offer it to their customer base, right? They have the ability to go and do that. And if it's not there, they'll build it themselves. But um, I think I don't expect kind of anybody that's, you know, doing a really good job from a brand perspective to really, you know, accept a, a sub quality product and you know we're seeing good products become commoditized you know you're seeing that in the in the remittance space you're seeing that you know in the general neobank space you're seeing that um in the payment space even um you're gonna see it in the lending space you're starting to see it in buy now pay later where you know these core things are um these core services are becoming commoditized and it's how best you deal with your stakeholders that determines whether you are um, the strongest player or not. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, one of uh, since the thesis is, uh, is mainly into fintech companies, uh, you know, you, you, uh, the, you have invested into Y Combinator companies. And one of the companies that I'm excited about is uh, is Level, which is you know, a trading platform that allows fintech startups to convert their loan receivables into upfront capital. And there have been a lot of alternative uh, lending companies. Uh, you know, what is about Level, which is uh, which uh, which excites you uh, and you know, why is this so different from, from others? So... I'm excited about Level because it's been a problem within um, my portfolio and the companies that I was advising before I started investing for the last seven years, right? Yeah. So I've always liked working with alternative um, lenders for, for two reasons. One is um, they can become high margin businesses. And the other thing is, is if you help them raise debt capital, 
then you're de-risking the equity side, right? So I always knew that if I was going into and investing in a seed stage alternative lender, if I was able to help them um, raise $10 million in debt day one, then they would be de-risked. But we always came to the same problem is that before those companies kind of found product market fit, they were always lending out of the equity, right? So before, let's say, you know, late seed to series A, they had, these founders had to raise a lot of capital, take a lot of early dilution in order to finance the loan book that they came out of. And I always thought that this was the craziest thing in the world. And so over the last couple of years, we've seen venture debt providers come out and start to finance these companies, but they still go in at a much later stage once they kind of learn how that company can underwrite the the credit risk. And so what Level's doing and why it's super exciting is because it can come in and one, help those day one companies um, finance their their loan books early because they look at the underlying the underlying risk kind of from an early stage, they understand the business. And the second thing is, is that obviously we know um, that getting access to that recurring revenue, which alone has, you know, recurring revenue, it is a good way of making, you know, is a good way of financing that business without over dilution. And where it kind of exceeds, say, um, an ARR, type or MRR type revenue-based financing is that the underlying loans actually have security, right? And so if a good example is if um, Level is financing um, another one of the companies that I've invested in called Marco that does trade finance, Marco takes security over the lending that they do. And so they can assign that security to level in order to back that kind of revenue-based financing product that um, they're able to offer them. So I'm, you know, it's very early for that business, but I'm extremely excited about it for a lot of reasons. One, I can bring them, you know, eight to 10 clients day one. Two, it's a problem that I've been, you know, unable to solve for um, my portfolio for the last, you know, four years of investing and seven, eight years of advising. And so there's a real need in the market. And I think um, as a niche business in that space, um, you know, I can easily see them, you know, deploying in the billions of dollars pretty, pretty quickly. And so I think it has the, it's reasonable to assume that they will be able to take a trajectory, you know, similar to the other revenue-based financing businesses by focusing on this specific niche and then, you know, having the ability to to know, go into other products should they wish to do so. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. Right. And uh, you know, a lot of companies when they when they take on equity, uh, you know, they they uh, there's a dilution uh, in the uh, in the round. But at the same time, they have the benefit of uh, the uh, advice from the VCs. Uh, but when do you think is the, the right time for 
for a company to either you know decide to either take debt or or equity uh, you know if if it is pre product market fit would you advise a company to you know take on debt uh, it could be very expensive in going forward it it really depends on their business model right and so for me like i i work with a lot of companies in the fintech sector and so if it depends on whether debt is the right piece for their business model so there's two specific areas within you know my portfolio that i advise companies to take on um debt for one is obviously if they are lending out that money then it's better a better use of capital is to go and take debt right even if they're having to pay you know expensive rates for it it's still better than the equity um dilution that they have to go and and take the second piece that i find quite interesting is you know a lot of uh, early stage fintech businesses are highly regulated and so they have to lock up a lot of capital um for regulatory and compliance purposes right um and so that is money that just sits in a bank account and can't be used and so there are some lenders out there that will provide um you know a convertible note type instrument that they can finance their regulatory capital and have a you know a repurchase um provision in there to be able to you know buy that note back um at a later stage and so these are two things that i always like um companies taking on debt for if they're just taking on debt to extend um their runway and um it's not backed by anything it's just like they assume that they're going to be able to raise um you know the traditional venture debt model i don't love it but that's i think why um you know the the revenue based financing is now available that's why you know new earlier stage venture debt providers are coming in and helping companies um you know finance their loan books and you're finding more interesting private market investors willing to look at this as a as an asset class and um i think it's quite lucrative if you if you do it correctly correct and uh, you know a lot of uh, fintech brands uh, uh you know are now targeting the millennials and the gen z's uh, what uh what do you think is uh, you know a fintech brand should do to build loyalty uh, with this emerging millennial generation i think it's the same with with any business um is that you kind of just have to listen to the listen to the customer accept feedback and move quickly right i think the the biggest thing with with gen z earlier you know gen z's and you know millennials to an extent is that they look for information and education through various different sources right so you'll see some gen z's will only take investment advice off of tiktok which you know for someone who's a little bit older is going to think is the craziest thing in the world but i think what the gen z kind of generation has learned is that information is freely available anywhere in the world and you kind of have to take what you can from it and and apply it in your day to day and so um listening to that you know investor and knowing how to access them is probably the number one point and then moving quickly right if you're you know taking 6 months to deploy a product you're probably going to miss um the customer base or what they're thinking and so that's one thing that we always you know try and tell or i always try and tell the companies that i'm working with is you know ship 
try and be shipping products, features all the time, get feedback, move quickly, um, be as transparent as possible with what you're doing and, you know, iterate when you can. There's for some reason, like that's always been one of the real benefits of the U.S. and Silicon Valley, but especially in emerging markets, a lot of people don't want to launch or, you know, be doing anything until it's 100% perfect in their eyes, but they've never even spoken to their, you know, specific customer base. And so validate your idea, validate, you know, new features and just ship product as quickly as possible and then iterate it once you have feedback. I think those are things that people should be doing all the time and have always been things that people have been advising on. But I think it's more important now because um, if you lose that brand value early, you're probably never getting it back because there's so many other places that um, the customer can go. You know, absolutely. And, uh, you know, for your particular syndicate, you know, uh, are there any major customer segments uh, that you focus on, uh, especially when it comes to, to fintech companies? And, you know, what do you look for uh, for a fintech company when you're trying to invest into them? Um, so uh, in terms of sector focus within the fintech space, which is getting so wide, I think I focus kind of on a couple of different verticals. One is capital markets, both public and private, and how, um, how investors are accessing, you know, both public and private markets and tools around that. Um, obviously, alternative lending is something that I've spent a lot of time in, you know, buy now, pay later, education finance, um, trade finance, how, you know, new forms of credit underwriting are, are there. Um, the third one is obviously just pure play infrastructure, you know, um, building tools to connect investors to financial products, embedded finances in that, um, and, you know, looking more and more lately at how, you know, data and alternative data um, can affect, you know, investment decision making and how that all ties together. And I guess one of the things that I really look at is if those companies within my portfolio can work together, right? So levels a perfect example where I know that within my own portfolio, there's, you know, a few companies that they can work with. And um, I think that's something that I try and do at least quite often is make sure that if I'm investing in a company, I have the ability to make a few client introductions or, you know, capital introductions very quickly that have a good, reasonable chance of success. And so that's kind of what I look for in terms of like the general scope of what I invest in out of the fund. Um, usually I look for seed stage companies where they're raising their first round of institutional capital. Um, I can be convinced by a really good founding team to go in earlier. Um, so, you know, recently was convinced by the, the founding team at Baraka to go in at their pre-seed. Um, another one called Kist Pay, which is by now pay later in, in Pakistan. They convinced me earlier than their seed round to go in and um, get involved early, but usually at seed stage, I'm not a lead investor. I'm really strong um, advisor to the founders that I work with. And so I never set the terms. So one of the things I always look for is a strong lead investor to set those terms and um, to support even further. And then it always comes down to two things. It's a uh, team and market. And, you know, market is probably the most important thing at the beginning, 
Um, because if, you know, if you're in a terrible market that has no chance to turn into a really good market, it doesn't matter how good the team is, but, you know, a, a mediocre team can execute in a really, really good market. And I guess, obviously I, you know, I'm close with the founders. And so the founders are something that I have to really, really believe in over everything else, because, you know, the market can change, right? We saw COVID change everything for a lot of people, but you can, you know, so team and market is the most important things. And then obviously trying to fit in uh, within the, the sectors that I work in. And then um, I like to kind of stay in the ge geographies that, that I know best, right? So U.S. and uh, Middle East, right? Seven years in a market, I know things on the ground that are, you know, going to be on, not easy for other people to see. And also, I think you see a lot of people going into, you know, LATAM super hot at the moment. Um, you see Africa is getting really hot in the fintech sector. But a lot of people have never even kind of that are investing in those spaces have never even been. And so I think you have a lack of I always say that if you're investing in something, you kind of have to have um, access to information that other people don't necessarily see or have. And so. I have that in the markets that I operate in. And if I don't have that in a market, then someone really, really close to me that I trust has to have it or I won't invest, right? So if I don't, you know, I think if you look in Africa as a perfect example, you've got the same five or 10 people that are doing the really early stage fintech stuff. They have access to that really early information. And if they're not willing to share that with me, then I'm not going to invest in, in that deal. But if they share it with me at the same time of their entry into that company, then yeah, I think it's a great opportunity. But I think you're seeing a lot of people throw money at um, jurisdictions or sectors that they don't understand or don't have you know, an information advantage on, which I think is something that you know is going to come back around to you know, be a a substandard return in their portfolio. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you run a syndicate, but you also run a, you know, a fintech focused uh, rolling fund. I think AngelList has been quite disruptive, especially when it comes to uh, angel investing and VC investing. Uh, you know, why, why, uh, uh, why did you, uh, you know, start a rolling fund uh, rather than, you know, create your own fund? And, uh, you know, what is the investment thesis for, for, for the rolling fund that you run? So I started um, on Angel List with the syndicate, and then I moved into the rolling fund. Um, I think the syndicate, from my experience, is best suited for um, kind of Series B and later investment opportunities, or kind of Series A and later, where the company is trying to raise a larger amount of money and you have time to close. There's three negative pieces um, to a syndicate deal that don't work well with the seed stage and are the number one reasons that I started um, the fund. The first one is, is my syndicate has a thousand people in it, you know, give or take. Okay. And if I want to close uh, an investment, I have to share the company's entire information with those a thousand people in order to raise the money. And so that is a wide um, dispersion of information, right? And most seed stage founders, if they want to be operating kind of in stealth or they don't want competitors or bigger groups to see that, the syndicate isn't the best place for that. 
The other thing is, is I never know exactly how much money um, that I'm going to be able to invest in a specific deal. And so, and I never like to over promise the founders and then underperform. So I, the way that I would always do it was instead of saying, hi, founder, I want to, you know, invest 300 to 500,000 in your deal, and then only come to them with a hundred K check that my LPs filled out. I would always start at, um, a hundred thousand and go up from, from there. And, you know, I never knew exactly how much I was going to invest. And, you know, we just invested our largest amount ever um, that went, was announced this week in a company called OnRamp. And I started there with a hundred thousand allocation and ended up, you know, well over a million dollars with just the interest that we had. So that's a negative thing when you're dealing with a syndicate because I, I don't have certainty of closure. And um, the last thing is, is no matter how fast AngelList moves, which they're very good, or how fast I move, which I'm fast, or how fast the companies move, it still takes two weeks to close a syndicate deal um, versus, you know, with the rolling fund, I can, you know, go in and uh, write a check in a day if I really want to, right? Really fast next day service. And AngelList has been amazing. And I think the one thing that, you know, everybody, they have 25,000 or more already accredited investors. So you can go as a new syndicate or new fund and get access to that. I am one person. I cannot, you know, speak to 25,000 people and have access to them for my fund. And I chose the rolling fund model um, for, for several reasons. Firstly, was is it's a good step from the syndicate to um to the fund model because i get to raise money on a quarterly basis um so i don't have to go out and raise the entire fund amount day one i get to raise on a quarterly basis the other thing i get to do is my first quarter my quarters close on the last day of the second month so i can go out to my lp base and say hey these are the companies that i've invested in in the first two months of this quarter do you want to join in this quarter and they can opt in or say no thank you and i that provides them the same kind of thought as um as the syndicate and then for you know i have some institutional investors that were looking at me as a first-time fund manager and one of the things they always said was, well, we want to um, see your track record. And the great thing about the rolling fund is, you know, they can choose their commitment level, right? So if they want to say, Chad, we're going to test you out for four quarters for one year, they can do that, right? They can invest for four quarters and see the track record, see how I'm operating, and then make a longer commitment. If they want to do one quarter, they can do that, which from a traditional fund is impossible, right? The way a traditional fund works is that you raise the entire amount of money up front, you invest it over you know, the next 18 months. By the time you get to that 12-month period, you start raising your next new fund and you're doing that off of, you know, very little information. And so a lot of institutional investors don't look at emerging managers because they don't know how to get into that subset of information. But where I've been successful, at least explaining it to my, you know, institutional investors, and they would have never backed me if I did a traditional fund because I'm, you know, a new manager was like, hey, 
this allows you to come in and build a track record and build trust with me in real time. If you don't want to continue after a year, you don't have to, there's no commitment and you get, um, you know, economics and all the previous investments that you've done. And so for LPs, it's, you pay for the flexibility, but it gives you the ability to, you know, not have to take a, a two to three or four year bet with me, you can come in, you can say, okay, Chad, I'm going to test you out for a quarter. I want to, if we've never spoke before, you can say, I'm going to test you out for a quarter. You'll get to work with me for, you know, the three months, see how I operate. And then you can say, okay, let's, you know, new trial period is now a year. And that's something you can't do in the traditional model. And so that's exactly why I chose AngelList. And um, it's been, you know, a good decision for me, even though, you know, I'm a lawyer, I could have done it myself. I have access to every other fund management platform. Um, I've invested in the best fund management platform in, in Europe. But, you know, the, the only difference with that one is I didn't have access to additional investor base, which, you know, I, you can't... Um, it's hard to beat what AngelList has built there from the network effect perspective. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Correct. No, absolutely. I think Angel has uh, done a great job when it comes to, you know, Angel investing and democratizing it. And, um, uh, you know, you've invested in over 20 different tech deals, but uh, uh, is, is it plan to invest? Uh, how many how many investments do you plan to do through your syndicate and through your rolling fund in a year? Okay, so the the rolling fund is my my primary investment vehicle now, and so the the rolling fund will do all kind of pre seed seed and Series A investments um, up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Anything that's larger than that, then the syndicate will also come in and do. The syndicate will also do anything that's Series B and and later. And so, I expect to do um, probably about four deals, four to five deals a quarter um, with the rolling fund, right? So that ends up being about 15 to 20 deals uh, a year. And then um, the, the syndicate will probably start to see um, about 10 deals a year. And, and that will start to scale um, a little bit more in the coming years as the companies from the rolling fund um, break out and start to become larger and get to kind of go and, and take on more capital. And so I expect for them to work very well together, but um, obviously the, the best deals are in the fund. And, you know, so if someone was like, how do we work with you? My advice would be to at least invest in the, the rolling fund to see the entire deal flow. And then um, you can pick the later stage winners um, when we go and do SPVs um, through the syndicate. And, and so, you know, there, there are some people that do it more as an indexing where they write small checks from their rolling fund and then also do syndicates on the side. That's, you know, not um, what I'm doing. I'm, you know, my primary investment vehicle is the rolling fund 
And the syndicate will get those kind of off thesis, later stage, larger ticket um, opportunities that don't meet the mandate of the rolling fund. Got it. And uh, again, you, you're a single uh, GP in your fund. Uh, are there any, any securities as an investor, you know, since you, uh, you got to know, compete for other deals and, you know, you're a collaborative angel, but sometimes you're a competitive fund manager? Um, so I, I don't find myself competitive to any other group that is out there, even whether they're a syndicate, you know, or a, another rolling fund, um, because I'm, it's me. Right. And so I have the back end that is angelist that makes sure that everything's done in an extremely professional manner, manner. Like it feels like there's six people, you know, team behind me that are really taking care of everything that's there. So I have no worry from, from that side. Um, larger VCs don't find me um, competitive because I'm not setting terms, right? So they're setting the terms. I'm not, you know, battling them for allocations or ownership percentages. And I haven't come across an early stage fintech company that says that having um, someone with a legal background um, that's been in the VC space their entire career isn't a isn't worth you know carving out a chunk of equity for right. So I actually find it very very easy to get into the deals um, that I want to get into, and I've set you know certain parameters around making sure that you know I. That's why I don't leave deals, right? Because I don't have, um, you know, the resources to go and uh, do a, you know, to make that happen in terms of doing, you know, a, you know, a thousand page due diligence, right? So I rely on my network. You know, I take introductions only from people that I've invested with or, you know, are investing with or from founders that I trust. Um, like I said, I don't lead rounds. So I always look for, a strong lead investor to set the terms. And so um, I'm pretty comfortable in my thesis. And I, like I said, I've never had a founder come to me and said, Chad, you're not a useful, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a useful participant on our cap table. And, you know, actually a lot of the times, and I'm not, you know, say, just saying this, you can speak to most of my founders is that they will always have considered me as probably one of their more helpful um, investors on their cap table. And so I look at the, the VC space, you, you're, you either come in one or one of two of the spaces, you're either providing support or you're providing money. And if you're not providing either of those two, or you're making it difficult, then you're not going to be on the cap table. And I used to remember this from um, when I was practicing laws, there are certain, you know, investors that, were really annoying for, you know, uh, for a $25,000 check, right? And just like, you know, really bothering the founders all the time, you know, a ton of needed their own lawyers to go check the documentation, even though um, they weren't leading the round and just founders stopped working with them. And so I think for me, I love being a micro VC, a micro fund. And so I like writing small checks, being helpful. I like being, you know, helpful to the bigger investors 
that, you know, can go and write those 10, $20 million checks later down the, the road. And so I think I fit really good into the ecosystem for both founders and for, for co-investors. And obviously that's a great spot for my investors to be in because, because of the way that my fund structured, they can write lower um, checks into my fund that they would never be able to get into some of the, the funds that I invest with. And so I think it's the way that I've designed it is perfect um, for both myself for the founders that I, you know, have the opportunity to work with for the co-investors that bring me into their deals and for my investors that get good access to really strong deals. They know that I'm going to be hands-on and helpful and they wouldn't get access to those opportunities in, in any other way. Got it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tanya, quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book or any content piece or podcast that you listen to? Um, so I'm, you know, I get probably every one of the, you know, fintech uh, related newsletters that comes out. And so like, you know, I'm always constantly reading those. I think, you know, the angel by, you know, Jason Calacanis was one of the books that got me into kind of investing. And I think it's a good spot for anybody to, to start. Um, I love a lot of the people that write or talk about kind of the intersection of, you know, finance technology and, you know, the economy. And so, um, Anthony Pompliano is one that I always like to listen to. And, and those are always the buzzwords, but they're the people that are, you know, have are out there and have built what I want to, to build. And they've, you know, those two guys have done it more from a, v, a media focused way. I'm probably a lot more um, behind the scenes than, than they are, but they've also built the, the kind of investing businesses that, that I look up to and kind of led the way on, you know, how to build a syndicate, how to build a rolling fund, how to build, you know, be a micro GP, solo GP. And so anybody that's doing what I want to be doing or where I want to see myself or where I want to surpass and be better than, or, you know, strive to be better than, and are, are people that I kind of look up to and I'll consume their content, um, you know, kind of religiously. Got it. And uh, we'll, we'll put that on, in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started, uh, you know, investing into startups and starting your syndicate, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Um, I think the only, okay, I think the, the biggest thing people can learn is that it's, you know, it's time in market versus kind of the number of like everybody says, okay, you have to build a, a portfolio. But I think what's one of the things that I've learned over the last few years is that that time in market is, is very important. So like you're constantly learning. And so, you know, if I invested in 50 companies my first year, I probably, you know, wouldn't be doing this now because I've learned so much since then that's kind of improved my investment thesis. I think the one thing that I would have done earlier was kind of evaluate how I was structuring the deals um, just, you know, via AngelList, right? Because I started my syndicate not on AngelList and then I had to move onto AngelList and then I moved from a syndicate to a, a rolling fund. And what that's done is kind of had a, a level of disruption 
for my investors that I'm constantly having to, you know, teach them about the platforms or, you know, what is a rolling fund. And so I think for, if I look back now, when I first started, um, you know, their angel list, I think was doing syndicates um, then, but they didn't have the rolling fund product. I think if I was starting again now, I would do everything in my power just to go into one product and have that business model kind of set in my mind from the beginning, because um, the the time to educate the investor base on, you know, why all of a sudden you're going from doing, you know, a syndicate every couple of weeks to um, now doing a fund is it takes some education and some of your investors will drop off. What is important is that I'm doing it because it gets us better deal flow, right? Better access to companies. And because my best companies asked us to do it, right? My best companies. And the, the, what I always tell people is my miss list, because I was a syndicate, was starting to look better than the companies that I had invested in. Because the best founders understand, you know, the downfalls of a syndicate and don't let me, you know, weren't letting me invest. And so we were, I had missed a couple companies that um, at, let's say the seed stage where they'd raised, you know, at under 20 million valuation, sometimes around 10, 15, and now they're 200, $300 million companies. And we missed all of that growth because the founders didn't like the syndicate. And so um, this, the, having the, the rolling fund, is the best access um, for my investor base. And then they'll be able to double down on the winners through the syndicate later. So I think that would have been the one thing that if I look back and said, what should have I done four years ago would have been go straight to, you know, one platform and live or die um, by that platform and build up my base there and then once you get to a certain mass, you can always then re, um, you know, consider the platform that you're using. But I think for me, um, if I would have gone to AngelList four years ago and set up the syndicate, then started doing funds, you know, really early, did the syndicate, you know, the same business model, uh, it would have saved me some headache, but it may or may not have made me more or less successful. But again, I'm the same thing as, you know, I'm a startup as well. Right. And so right. you kind of te test things out, figure out, you know, how they work with your customers. And I'm a two-sided marketplace, right? I've got two, two sets of customers. I have the founders that I serve and I have the investors that allocate money through me into those companies. And so I have to listen to both of them and what they want. And so my founders were telling me to set up a fund. And so I said, okay, I'm doing that. And my investor base has, has supported me. Um, and, you know, but it did take a lot of education for the investor base to say, why are we, um, you know, making this change? And so I, I guess I would have just done that from the beginning rather than, um, you know, switching now. I think, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, it's important to, uh, real trade and you know test uh, new things and I think uh, uh, I think AngelList uh, uh, has been so disruptive and with the new product I think it's it's worked up a lot of new fund managers and uh, do you have any favorite online tools for example Gmail Slack Zoom? Um, so I 
I'm still like, obviously I use Zoom a lot. I uh, use Google a lot. Um, I'm still like pretty, you know, I've gone, I think also as I've become busier, you know, I'm really, I use a lot of things like Calendly is a really, you know, important one for me um, to keep my calendar straight. Um, the other thing that I like a lot is Docsend, um, which is really good for me because I can put all the, you know, private documents in there and send a link. And what it really allows me to do is it's an analytics tool that I get to see who's viewed the pitch decks of my fund or the companies that I'm investing in. So I know who to go and reach out for. Um, I still use email mostly to communicate with, uh, with most people just because it's, um, you know, I've had to protect both, you know, my time and availability, you know, the more and more you kind of get active, the more people want all of your time. And so email and Calendly and, you know, has allowed me to do that. But I think the last year Zoom has been, or video conferencing in general has been one of the most important things for me because now it allows me to really operate across, you know, my jurisdictions without having to be, um, on the ground all the time. And I think that's been the best tool for me. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Jack, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about your syndicate and the rolling fund? Um, so best way people can reach out to me is probably initially through LinkedIn. Um, you know, I'm pretty easy to find on, on there. Um, from there, any, the great thing about AngelList is you can go um, onto my rolling fund page and become an investor without us ever even having to have a conversation. Um, but, you know, most investors will reach out to me through LinkedIn. Um, we'll, you know, I'll send them the link to the rolling fund. I'll send them a link to my calendar so that they can book any time to have a conversation. And then that's the great thing about AngelList, like I said, is that all the investments done directly on the platform. And so they get to literally with one push of a button, um, become an investor in the, the rolling fund. And once they do that, um, then they get access to all the deal flow, whether it's, you know, through the fund or through the syndicate. Um, so go join the rolling fund and then, you know, or reach out to me on LinkedIn for a chat around that. And then it's, you know, pretty easy to access me once you're you know an investor in my fund i i don't really have the ability to to say no after that so that's the easiest way we'll put, 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 put all the links for the linkedin profile and your rolling fund link uh Charles, thank yeah. you so much for uh, taking our time and speaking to us i really enjoyed my conversation with you thanks for having me really appreciate it and looking forward to the next one Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.